Appalachia. Appalachia is a very distinct word, and everybody has their own opinion of what it represents. Moreover, though, whether it's right or wrong, it stirs up images of everything from indescribable mountaintop beauty, deep forest, and cabins in the wood to trailer parks, meth heads, extreme prejudice, and xenophobia. The fact that one word can bring up such a huge response is an owed to its far-reaching influence in society. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world. They once towered 30,000 feet into the air and currently stretch from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. The inhabitants of these mountains through the many years of their existence have lived through and witnessed what can only be described as horrendous, demeaning, and even downright unbelievable history as we are now learning every day is not exactly what we've been told and what was once thought to be nothing more than fairy tale is now coming to light as truth. I often hear references to the movie Deliverance or people making funny banjo sounds when describing the Appalachians. I, being born and raised in these mountains, know that nothing in fact could be more wrong or, in some cases, more right. The history that lies in these mountains is rich and has been around longer than any place in the United States. In fact, far longer than the United States itself. We'll look into these mountains and learn about the good, the bad, and the ugly history that lies within them to this very day. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley, and this is Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Hello and welcome back, my good friends. I'm glad you're here. Thank you for joining me. Lend me here and let me tell you about one of the ugliest parts of our history, both in the Appalachians and America itself. A tale with a very unexpected ending. Little can be said to ease the struggle of any human being that has dealt with judgments thrust upon them based solely in the color of their skin. It is nothing short of pure horror that people have died for nothing more than that reason alone, never knowing the full breadth of living in freedom and being judged on the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. Unfortunately for the American South, the racism ran rampant nearly through the entire 1960s, and this did include the Southern Appalachians. Located in the north-central part of Kentucky lies Bullock County. The first inhabitants of that land that would become Bullock County were known as the Paleo-Indians. These people, whose ancestors can be traced back to eastern and central Asia, were nomadic. They were hunters and gatherers whose remains have been discovered near the area's mineral springs and salt licks for big game such as the woolly mammoth, bison, and ground sloth once gathered. Native Americans were their descendants, including the great Shawnee Nation. The Shawnee people made it their hunting grounds, as did the 18th century long hunter. In 1773, the French and Indian War, the Virginia governor sent Captain James Bullitt to the area to survey lands for grants. The most historic of the 
County Salt Lake's Bullet Lick is named after him. As the Revolutionary War led to widespread salt shortages, the lick became the site of the Kentucky's first industry, attracting many settlers to the area. Colonial veterans of the war were promised land in what was later called Kentucky. Bullet's Lick became an important salt work to the region. Its salt was harvested and sent by pack train and flat boat as far off as Illinois to the west, and Bullet's Lick salt work was Kentucky's first industry and in production till around 1830. By that time, the steamboat and importing of salt brought access to less expensive sources. The first settlement of the area was also the first station on the Wilderness Road between Harrodsburg and the Falls of the Ohio. It was a fort called Basher's Station, or the Salt River Garrison. Built in 1779 at the mouth of Floyd's Fork. Most of the country was settled after the American Revolutionary War. Shepherdsville, named after Adam Shepherd, a pr- prosperous businessman who purchased the land near the Falls of Salt River in 1793, is the oldest town and became the county seat. In December of 1796, the Bully County came to be and was named after Thomas Bullitt's nephew and Kentucky's first lieutenant governor, Alexander Bullitt, and was organized from land taken from Jefferson and Nelson counties through an act approved on December 13, 1796 by the Kentucky General Assembly. By 1904, Bullitt County was 40 years past the Civil War and had weathered the reconstruction of it. One would think that the point of equal rights for all as written in the U.S. Constitution would have been reached by citizens not just in Bullock County, Kentucky, but across this entire nation by then. After all, it was the cornerstone of the founding of our nation. But sadly, that wasn't the case. As in 1904, though slavery was illegal, plantation owners had found a way around that law. They called it sharecropping. Now, I'm not here to denounce sharecropping at all when sharecropping is done fairly, and it's not a bad deal for the labor put in by the sharecropper. Heck, there's been countless meals laid out on numerous tables for many years from the labor of sharecroppers, but some of what I've read about it ain't all pretty. For example, the amount of the fruits of one's labor can be based on the color of their skin. Being a black sharecropper during this time in history was pretty much akin to being a slave. You were treated as a slave by usually being the first to be required to be in the field in the morning and the last one allowed to leave at night, among other demeaning job requirements. This, along with abusive demeaning language toward you and, yes, even still in 1904, there were whippings and beatings. Then after enduring all of that, you'd not get enough of the harvested crop to live on. There was no recourse as most of the law enforcement, to say the least, turned a blind eye to the whole thing. Mary Thompson was a widowed black sharecropper in Bullock County during this time as her husband had been killed as a result of sharecropping. Exactly how? Well, I couldn't find anywhere in the record. She worked on land owned by one John Irvin, a white man. 
One day, while she and her son were working in the vegetable garden, Mr. Irvin approached them and demanded the return of a pair of pliers. Mary's son said that he had already returned the tool. Mr. Irvin began to accuse the boy of stealing the pliers, verbally berating him and kicking him several times in the back. And now you see what I mean. Of course, Mary jumped to her son's defense and confronted the overbearing landowner over her son, and they argued. Being the typical white landowner of the day, Mr. Irvin was shocked that Mary would have the gall to challenge him. Mr. Irvin demanded that she get off his property. By evicting her, he didn't think twice about taking her home, income, and dignity. Now, matters of no wet hen and about as desperate, and who could blame her? Mary struck back. According to Mary, she complied with Mr. Irvin's demand, but she intentionally walked really slow, giving him the eye on the way out. Mr. Irvin became enraged and attacked Mary from behind with a knife and bit off a little more than he could chew. He grabbed a hold of something that he soon wished to turn him loose. Mary, a woman described as weighing a lean 255 pounds, as we say in the mountains, tore Mr. Irvin a new one and ended up cutting his throat with her case knife, which she was using to cut greens, killing him on the spot. She then told sold her horse and furniture to her neighbors and was on her way out of town when she was pounced on and arrested. I'll be right back. You're listening to Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend with Larry Bentley. Thompson was jailed and charged with murder that same day as if things weren't already bad enough, the Courier-Journal published an article about Mr. Irvin's death. Just as it is today, you can leave it to the media to stir up another mess, and they didn't miss the chance to do just that this time. That night, an armed band of about a dozen white men formed a lynch mob and surrounded the jail in Levin Junction at midnight on June 14, 1904. They intended to lynch Mary. On one hand, they uh, used a sledgehammer to beat at the large padlock, keeping a heavy iron bar in place across the door of the jail. This must have been horrifying for Mary, as she had absolutely no recourse in the face of this threat. While the mob was trying to break in, a group of armed African-American men came up behind them and opened fire on the mob. That's when the white men making up the lynch mob ran firing off only a few wild shots in their escape from the scene. That's a great example of the kind of chicken-livered people who took place and involved in this kind of thing. The gunfire brought most of the people of the village to the jail to see what in the world was going on. The African-American men made one critical mistake. After the white county sheriff and his deputies promised to protect Miss Thompson if the mob came back, they believed them. But the sheriff and his deputies had the same kind of liver as a lynch mob. They just left and went back home to bed. Two hours later at 2 a.m., a mob of 50 men appeared at the jail again. Meeting no resistance from law enforcement, they dragged Mary Thompson from her cell, dragging her by a rope tied around her neck and tried to hang her from the tree in the jail yard. When Mary saw it, begging for mercy wasn't going to do no good, she began fighting the mob like a tiger woman. 
One account described her as an Amazon tiger. She left several of the men stretched out on the ground. Eventually, the 50 white men got the noose back around Mary's neck and threw it over the branch and pulled her off the ground. She wasn't about to give up so easy as she quickly twisted her body around, grabbed hold of one of the lynchers by the collar, pulled him off the ground, and snagged his knife away from him and cut herself down. When she dropped to the ground, she started swinging at the drunken, stunned men as she left several more lying stretched out on the ground from her hail of punches. She then broke away from the crowd and started to run away. She was then hit by a hail of gunfire. More than a hundred shots were fired at her. In all, she was finally fell. The mob, of course, cheered. Mary lay on the ground, blood flowing from her body. Assuming the deed to be done, the mob broke up at about five o'clock in the morning. That's when the sheriff found Mary. Expecting that she was dead, he summoned the undertaker. But they soon found Mary wasn't dead at all. Once she saw the sheriff, she sat up and began telling him what happened, being that he was hiding at home in bed, of course. The sheriff helped her to a doctor who patched a wound from a 38 caliber pistol ball, which had entered her back and went completely through her body, missing every major organ and blood vessel in her body. That's right, the drunken mob had fired over 100 shots at her and hit her only once. She had laid there feigning death all night until the coast was clear. After the visit to the doctor, the sheriff took Mary to the more secure stone jail in Shepherdsville, which still stands today in its original location just behind the county courthouse and is open for visitors whenever the courthouse is open if you want to go look at it. Word soon spread that Mary Thompson had survived her lynching, and of course that's when another lynch mob formed. This time estimated to be several hundred men, and they did proceed down to the stone jail. I gotta wonder at this time if any of the men, and I use the term loosely, who got knocked out in the first round, tried to come back and have another go at it. I seriously doubt that myself, because they're just not that kind of people. The sights and sound of that dark night must have been horrific, too especially for a woman left defenseless in her cell and still in pain from a bullet wound from the first time. Surprisingly, seeing that the stone jail was virtually impenetrable, they eventually did leave. Jailer Jones stayed in the relative safety of his own home. Some of the men had tried to trick him into coming out so they could steal the jail keys, but he refused to and told the men to go home. The jail held long enough for some sobering up and reason to prevail. The next morning, police came to Louisville and took Mary to the city to get her out of harm's way. In court, Mary admitted to knifing John Irwin, but claimed to be defending herself and her little boy, too, saying, As true as her God in heaven, I did not mean to kill that man until after he attacked me and I was forced to fight for my life. She said that she was digging greens in the field with her case knife when Mr. Irvin came up to her and ordered her off his place, accusing her son of stealing a pair of pliers. She said that Mr. Irvin began kicking her son and cussing at her, and then she used her case knife to protect herself from injury. And she also added, don't ask me about that mob. It's all too terrible to recount. The local paper chastised the county about the attempted lynching, saying that the evidence was strong and implying that Mary would surely be hung soon anyway. 
there was absolutely no excuse for any mob, the paper said. It doesn't speak well for the community that the authorities thought that her removal necessary. Heck, it don't speak well for the paper that they took that view in the first place, because it ain't much better, is it? The trial apparently was a sensational one. Over 350 potential jurors had to be called in order to get enough to form a proper jury. And interesting, though they convicted, Mary wasn't sentenced to death after all. Instead, on September 8, 1905, she was sentenced to two years in state penitentiary, which might say something about her side of the story, especially back in those days. She did serve her time in prison, eventually moving with her family to Jefferson County, Kentucky. After her release, Mary Thompson died August 18, 1934, in Jefferson County, the mother of 12 children and the widow of her husband, Ben. She was buried in Greenwood Cemetery. John Irvin, now he was buried in Nelson County, Kentucky, in the Bard Irvin Cemetery. Now, I'm not here to lecture on human rights nor talk politics, but instead bring the sometimes awful truth of our history to light. Some seem to be offended by that, but some of our history is exactly that, just plain offensive. Truly, as unfortunate as it is, it's part of the ugly history of this country, including the history of the Appalachian Mountains. I hope you've enjoyed our story today. If you have, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe. Please go over to our Patreon page at patreon.com, search Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend, and give it a look. If you'd like to join, there are several levels to choose from, starting at Mountain Boomer all the way up to Appalachian Hillbilly. You can also go to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery Legend Podcast, where you can discuss anything Appalachian or whatever else you'd like to talk about. I'll be back with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend. Thank you for listening. I'll see you then.